you would, turn to Exodus 19. It's a rather obscure text, and yet many scholars call it the climax of the book of Exodus, which is interesting. The law appears, the Ten Commandments is in Exodus 20. We're not going to go through those. We could recite them, but uh, you know those, I hope, right? Uh, Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. They appear again in Deuteronomy. Exodus is interesting because it's, what it's doing is it's shaping a people. Uh, God is honing, uh, <laughs> he's fine-tuning as best he can, uh, the Israelites as best he can. He can do it. Uh, it's the, the Israelites are not allowing it, and we're going to see some problems as we've already seen. Deuteron- so Exodus deals with the law and the people. Deuteronomy is more about the law and the land. And now that we have this people that's been set apart, it's preparation for what they're going to do starting in Joshua. All right, so that's kind of where we are with all of this. And in Exodus 19, a climax to really the book because it's now God is going to enter into a new relationship with His people, the covenant. And so let's look at this, uh, 19.1. In the third month after the Israelites went out from the land of Egypt, and scholars have debated in the third month, it could be the third moon, and what exactly does that mean? It's either two or three months from the time they left Egypt. All right, so we're not that far out, are we? And a lot has happened since we left Egypt. Let's just rehearse in this journey to God, as it's called. What have we seen? What's some of the encounters that we've, we've seen with the Israelites? Bread, water, bitter water, attack from the Amalekites, a major world power at that time frame, not to underestimate these nomadic pirates of the desert, right? So, I mean, they've encountered a lot. Now, and the fear has been more external, right? I'm going to starve. I'm going to die of thirst. I'm going to die from the attack of an enemy. Now there's going to be a fear of God. Now he's going to say, now you're going to encounter me in a way you've not encountered me before. Uh, and, And it says that Egypt, the very day they came to the desert of Sinai, after they journeyed from Rephidim, they came to the desert of Sinai and they camped in the desert. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Moses went to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain. Thus you will say, interesting, Aaron is kind of pushed out of the way a little bit, right? To the house of Jacob and declare to the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I lifted you up on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And now, if you will diligently obey and keep my covenant, then you will be my special possession out of all the nations from all the earth that is mine. And you will be my kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the Israelites. So Moses came and announced, there's going to be several times Moses goes up and down this mountain. Uh, but Moses came and summoned the elders of Israel. So remember, we've, we've uh, according to Jethro's advice in chapter 18, we now have leadership in the camp. You know, there's some scholars, by the way, that argue that uh, Moses made a mistake doing that. I don't see that in the text. Uh, but they, they, they say this is, was the problem with the Sanhedrin later, that Jewish council. But I, I find that. I don't see that in the text at all. But anyway, he set before them all the words which the Lord had commanded, and all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has commanded, we will do. Bless their pointed little heads. So, I mean, 
Grumble, 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 and all of a sudden, oh, yes, we'll do whatever you want. Uh, sure. So Moses brought the words of the people back to the Lord. In that opening paragraph in your notes, uh, I mentioned it, well, I quote Riken in his commentary, says, it marks the achievement of God's plan to save a people for his glory. Rehearsing the past, the Lord indicates his love and purpose for his people. Uh, this isn't all of a sudden they become God's people. We're going to look at this in a minute, but they're already God's people. He's already referred several times in Exodus, you were mine. He uses that personal pronoun. So that's already been seen. This is a new, a, a new level, <laughs> so to speak. We now went from engagement to uh, I do. Uh, we, we, we've moved into this uh, very intimate relationship via the covenant, the law that he's about to give. No wonder he's been trying to hone and shape them prior to this event, Right? He had some things he needed to do with Moses and his leadership abilities. We looked at that even last week. But also he had to deal with the Israelites and this, this call for holiness, this call for obedience. And the fear lingers here as if we were to read on in 19 and going into 20 especially, that if you don't obey, then you'll receive the wrath of God. You're going to be under judgment. Well, let's look. Let's look at the text here as we go along. Uh, verses 1 and 2, I think it's more than just a travel log. I think he's rehearsing what has transpired. Twice he's going to mention Egypt. Uh, doesn't take a rocket scientist to remember what happened in Egypt, all right? That was just two months ago, all right? Uh, we got a real problem if you can't recall what the Lord did in Egypt, all right? And the place of rest, remember this? This is where we had no water. This is where the Amalekites came and attacked. So they were camped there for a period of time, and now we're camped down at the, the Mount of uh, Sinai. And scholars, not only do they debate, debate the time frame, they debate the location, and I'm just not going to go into to that this morning. Uh, but there are two, maybe three, actually three major proposals by scholars. Where is Mount Sinai today? Uh, I've been on Mount Sinai the traditional one, which is by St. Catherine's Monastery. Um, I don't know. But there you are, somewhere in this vicinity. We'll leave it at that, all right? But far more significant is what God has got to say to them. And we start, see this starting in verse 3. Uh, the, the sights and sounds <laughs> that are going to surround this whole event is, is another way to establish Moses is your leader. He will serve as my, God speaking, mediator to you. So don't mess with Moses. Don't mess with me. This is how we're going to do it. And again, I, I find it intriguing. Uh, Aaron has kind of been pushed to the side because Moses will be uh, the voice to the people at this time frame. Verses 3 through 6, scholars point out that there is what we call a chiastic structure. And you're going, what in the world is that? It's 7 o'clock in the morning, Hophaditz. And you're throwing out stuff I really don't care about. Uh, I understand. A chiastic structure is, is really an X of sorts where a point is made, it's repeated at the end, and it's a mirror image, really. And as you see there in the middle of the notes, this A, B, C, and then B, 1, B, A, 1. It, notice it starts with the command to speak to Israel, and that's how this section will end. 
It then moves to Lord's past grace towards Israel, what I did as an, as an eagle, which we'll look at in a minute, versus the Lord's future grace, which is seen in verses 5 and 6. The heart of a chiastic structure, and this is very common in Semitic uh, um, material, uh, Hebrew language or literature, and that is the, 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 the focal point is C, the condition of obedience. That's the heart of what he's about to relate to them. I did this, I'll do this, you need to be obedient. This is a bilateral covenant, right? I'm giving you this, and it's conditioned on how you respond to what I'm giving you, all right? And again, he's seeking for obedience. Questions on that? And again, that's called a chiastic structure. You want to impress your friends, neighbors, say, well, there's a chiastic structure in Exodus 19, right? They're going to go, great. Thank you. Hang out on your beak, right? All right. Well, let's look at verse. Let's look at verse four, and we have the image of an eagle. It's actually a vulture. Uh, is probably we're talking about a vulture griffin. Uh, that's the creature that you're looking at, not the most attractive. It's not like the bald eagle or anything. But uh, this imagery is common in the Hebrew scriptures. The eagles were known uh, for sitting on the nest up to 100 days, and then they were very careful with their young, uh, even pushing them out of the nest. They would swoop them down if they couldn't fly, Uh, and so they were known as being very nurturing, caring, but also very fierce, uh, very protective, all right? Uh, Sounds like your mama, right? Uh, Protective, Uh, they cared for their young, Uh, and so the image of the eagle is so apropos that he should use that here in verse 4, because they would have seen these creatures walking through this region. I kind of wondered if they had to fight them for the manna. Who knows? Uh, I don't know. The text doesn't tell us that. Um, But for protection, provision, and for the care that's given. But I want you to look at a text. Turn to Deuteronomy 32. This is so powerful. At the conclusion of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Lord states a few things via Moses. We're going to look at Deuteronomy 32, starting in verse 9. It says, For the Lord's allotment in His people, Jacob, is His special possession. The Lord found him in a desolate desert. Desolate land, excuse me, in an empty wasteland where animals howl. He continually guarded and taught him. Kind of reminds you of the, the journey they've been in thus far, right? Slavery in Egypt, attack from the Amalekites. He continually protected them like a pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. The Lord spread out its wings and took him. He lifted him up to his pinions. The Lord alone was guiding him. No foreign God was with him. Isn't that great? There it is. This image comes back, and you know what? It returns again when it's used in Isaiah to talk about bringing the Israelites out of Babylon. God will be your eagle that delivers you, right? Um, It's a powerful image, seeing the text. Any questions or comments on that? 
Again, that's, that's the creature we're talking about. Don't think the bald eagle. <laughs> uh, almost looks like a vulture. And if you say that, you're right. The, the text tells us, go back to Exodus and look at this. Because he uses another term that's loaded. Besides the imagery of an eagle that carries us along. Well, uh, he says that, uh, and I lifted you up as eagle wings and brought you to... Uh, the, the idea... He uses a term that we often translate as carry, which is intriguing because the Lord carries his people, but idolaters carry their gods. And you say, well, yeah, turn to Isaiah 46 because it's used directly in this text. I want you to see this. Isaiah 46, it's used here in this passage. As I was studying this text this week and last week, this passage just jumped out at me. 46.1. If you don't get anything from Hophaditz this morning, just run with this text today. All right? Look what it says. We'll start in, well, he mentions Bel and Nabo Benzlo. They're images, this is latter part of verse 1 of chapter 46 of Isaiah. Their images weigh down animals and beasts. Your heavy images are burdensome to tried animals. I mean, to carry these sucker, they're they're heavy, right? I could take you to the Israel Museum. We can look at a statue of Ashdod or a Baal. You know, they have to carry these suckers around, which ought to tell you something to begin with, right? Um, I'm glad that our God carries us. <laughs> Together they bend low. He says. Uh, and kneel down, they're unable to rescue the images they themselves head off into captivity. Listen to me, O family of Jacob, all you who are left from the family of Israel, you who have been carried from birth. You have been supported from the time left the womb. Who's he talking about? Who carries you from the time? Even when you are old, I, this is the Lord speaking, I will take care of you. I carry you. Yet, your fellow countrymen carry gods. I carry you. I provide for you. Even when you have gray hair, I will carry you. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's good. I, I agree. Amen to that, right? My son said the other day, Dad, can you cut out the gray in your hair? I said, no, because it's all through it. Sorry. I made you and I will support you. I will carry you and rescue you. Isn't that a great text? Put that on the dashboard this week. This week. Yes, Lou. Yes. That's right. And it's in the whole context of, of uh, Israelite going whoring after the gods, right? Why would you do that? I am your God. I will carry you. I made a covenant with you. And, and you have to think of Exodus 19. I carried you through Egypt. And out of Egypt, and I will carry you still. So don't go worshiping other gods. I am God. And, it's just, and that is a loaded Hebrew term there. And, and so when we look at this, Isaiah 46 is such a vital Old Testament text for this whole scene. And that, that spills over into your next page, which you can read. And again... This isn't that Israel all of a sudden became God's people as they entered this covenant. I want to say that again. They were his people long before. If you know Jesus as your Savior, 
He called you before the foundation of the world. He already was thinking of you, right? And according to Isaiah, um, before you were even born, he was thinking through these things, right? (laughs) The covenant, as we look at the offering of the covenant with the Israelites, was the purpose of entering a new relationship. And this is key. This is there in your notes. Um, Hamilton in his commentary, that's that second paragraph on page two. A covenant is by means by which two parties enter into a new relationship with each other, or more often a covenant elevates to a more intimate, dynamic level an already existing relationship between two parties. This new covenant extends grace. It gives mercy, joy, peace, forgiveness of sin through the Mosaic Law. All of that entails here as they enter this new covenant. And I can't help but think of Hebrews. (laughs) There's another covenant that Christ Himself has instilled for us, those who know Jesus, right? Through his own blood, not a goat's, right? And how greater the new covenant is. Hebrews talks about that 13 times. He says, it's more better. It's more better. Why? Because we have direct access with God 24-7. Under this covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the people could appear before God once a year via a high priest, right? And there was layers to even get to God. And even the high priest had to offer up sin for himself, but not under the covenant or under the new covenant. But these covenants were, were to, to, to come together uh, to, to, for new relationship, and we see that the result of the new covenant, this, this Mosaic covenant, was a call for greater obedience and an understanding of what was expected of God's people. Wasn't... Um, and I mentioned that compromising behavior, half-hearted devotion, and a laissez-faire attitude towards the spiritual walk was, and I would argue under the new covenant, is unacceptable. God has gone to great lengths for His people, right? He did it then with Israel. He's done it with us, the church, under the new covenant. What is the basis? Look at this as he lays this out. Let's go back to the text. Go back to Exodus 19. He says, uh, as he he lays this out, he states in verse 5, Now if you'll diligently obey and keep my covenant, notice he says, You're my special possession out of all the nations, for all the earth is mine. It's amazing how many times creation becomes a basis for a theological argument in the Bible. Think about that. Think about the New Testament. It's God's created order that marriage is between a man and a woman only. It's God's created order that there's a role of distinction between men and women in the church. It's the created order that is the basis for this. And you go, well, what are you talking about? All the earth is mine. Freitheim in an article, Freitheim, excuse me, in an article on Genesis and its relationship to Exodus is absolutely fabulous. I was reading it this week, and he says, listen, Exodus has to be seen in light of the book of Genesis. It's the second chapter. In other words, the themes that you saw in Genesis, creation, promise, God's divine purpose, it's all there. 
I, I've quoted two quotes. Forgive me for insulting your intelligence, but we have to read it. This is there on page two. He says, the book of Exodus is meant to be interpreted, not to be interpreted in isolation. He says, it's very important. Then notice that last sentence. He says, indeed, God's redemptive activity on behalf of Israel is not an end in itself. It is in the service of an entire creation for all the earth is God's and God's intimately Initially, exclusive move is for the sake of a maximally inclusive end, right? As he works through Israel, it's to bless all people. And I would argue in the new covenant, as he works through the church, it's to bless the ends of the earth, Matthew 28, right? A lot of correlation here. And Creation becomes the, the underpin of this whole section. All the earth is mine, and that's why you are being called out. Israel is special to him. Now, notice he gives three descriptors of the Israelites. Let's just walk through them, and we're going to tie this in, I promise. You're going, oh, this is a nice history lesson. We'll, we'll get there. Hang in there. All right? First of this is he says, you are my treasured possession. This is a loaded term. He says, you are uh, a treasured, uh, well, I mentioned this here, it's royal property. It's the king's prized possession. That's who you are. The, uh, you can see there the positioning and meaning of the phrase highlights Israel's unique affection. What's interesting uh, is that this term, possession, is often seen with holiness. They're coupled together, which you would expect, Right? That which is close to God is going to be holy. Otherwise, don't be in my midst. The great news is, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, according to 2 Corinthians 5, when God looks at you, He sees Christ's righteousness. That's how you can enter the very throne room of God via Christ. You are holy in, in position through Christ. So it's a unique treasure Hamilton, in his notes, I love this statement. It's worth today coming. He states, the coupling of these two phrases is a, is a deterrent against emphasizing unique treasure to the exclusion of holiness. Listen to what he's saying. If I say it's prized possession and I forget holiness, then he states, what does he say? It's, um, it's a sliding into lawlessness. Then I can do whatever I want. Right? If I'm God's great possession and I don't have to worry about holiness, yeah, I can do whatever I want. If I go the other extreme and I stress holiness and I'm not his prized possession, then I have legalism. And he said the two go hand in hand. And it's interesting that that's what the Hebrew does. When it talks about a, a prized possession of God, holiness is directly linked with it, uh, emphasized. So they're, they're a, tri a treasured possession. He also says they're a kingdom of priests. Now, there are a few scholars that say what the reference here to kingdom of priests is, that Israel is made up of kings and priests. I don't think so. I think what's going on here is he's saying you're priest on two... Yes, I know there's a Levitical, the Aaronic priesthood. He's not nullifying that. But he's saying you as a people, you as a group of Israelites are priests because, number one, you come to me. Collectively, you come to the Lord. And secondly... You are priest to me before the nations. You, it's through you that I bless all peoples, right? Remember the covenant with Abraham? 
What did he tell Abraham? You're going to, through you, all the nations are going to be blessed. It's interesting, even in the Hebrew here, in Exodus 19, he uses, he normally uses a different term for nations when he refers to Israel. He uses goyim, he uses the Gentile term he, 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 in order just to even emphasize you are part of this and in and, and, and so doing you're going to bless them. And that's all mentioned there in point two. So two roles, two ways they serve as priests. One is you, you, you come to me, you have direct access to me, so the uniqueness there but also, you have a responsibility to the rest of the world. Again, that's stressed a couple times here in the text, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Matthew 28, yeah. And uh, we're going to get there, but <clears throat> that's the problem in the early church, because the early church... Uh, ethnocentricity <laughs> um, you have a Jewish nation by the first century <clears throat> pardon me who um, aren't too excited about going to tell people if you want to come to Judaism in the first century you came to us we didn't come to you and so the Lord has to turn up the heat in Acts <laughs> so that the church will go and tell and that's just vastly different uh, than what the Jews were used to but they were met this was part of this whole this new relationship is to emphasize their role within humanity, right? And then one more, that to be a holy nation. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> I think I'm dying. Yes, some coffee would be great. I'm annoying everybody. A holy nation. This is not that holy is not to be seen as pure. Uh, yes, that comes. But as you see at the bottom of your notes, it's better to see the term as that which is devoted. That's what is committed to. It's committed to being pure. It's committed to being obedient. But it's something that's set apart. On the top of your notes, uh, within the context, this is one scholar quoting, the context of covenantal relationship, and it expresses commitment. In other words, they've been set apart from other people. Thank you so much. Iron Man strikes again. Uh, they've been set apart for other people, and they've been set apart for a specific purpose. Right? Again, as I mentioned at the beginning of the class hour, we're looking at, at um, Exodus is focusing on the law and working with forma formation of this people. When we get to Deuteronomy, we're going to deal with the land. We're going to move forward to that realm. But right now, he's setting these people apart for what he wants to accomplish. Well, you look at this and you go, Hophetus, this is great. But I, I, the question is, why? Why Israel? Why didn't he pick the Amalekites? Were the Egyptians? I mean, they were sophisticated. Look at all the gold they had. You know, uh, why the Israelites? And it's not because they were a great group. They grumbled. I mean, they they get done in verse eight and say, "Yeah, hey, anything we'll do, you know, we'll do it." Chapter thirty-two, they're worshiping a calf. All right. So why? Why the Israelites? Why you? And why me? Mold him in his image? Grace? We sometimes miss in the Old Testament, there's grace all over the place. God tells them, Deuteronomy 7, look at this text. 
Deuteronomy 7. I mean, the same question can be asked. Why did you choose me, Lord? I certainly don't bring much to the table. Actually, nothing. Deuteronomy 7, the Lord tells Israel why he chose them. He says, it's not because you were more numerous than all the other people that the Lord favored and chose you. (laughs) For in fact, you were the least numerous of all people. Rather, it is because of, watch this, his love for you and his faithfulness to the promise he solemnly made to your ancestors that the Lord brought you out with great power, redeeming you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh's king of Egypt. So realize that the Lord your God is a true God, the faithful God, whose covenant keeps, he keeps a covenant faithfully with those who love him and keep his commandments. So what's it say? Because he loved doing it. Out of his grace and mercy, he chose the Israelite people and entered a special relationship. Why, ultimately? So the whole world would be blessed. We don't know this. Yeah. That's right. God's sovereign, yep, that's right. And so what do we do living under the new covenant? What do we do today? Let me give you three things to run with as we look at this text. If you're struggling with feeling unsatisfied or unfulfilled, struggling with life in general, if you know Christ as your Savior, what that means is you're not basing You've come to recognition that you are a sinner, (laughs) that you've fallen short before a holy God, and you're saying, yep, the only means for restored relationship with God is through Christ's death on the cross and His resurrection, and coming to a point, Lord, I, I repent and I turn to You. If you've done that, then there's a recognition that you're His treasured possession. Turn to a very familiar passage, but... Sadly, at times, I think it becomes so familiar, we, we miss the, the punch. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Ephesians 1, 3 says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. It's interesting he'd say that because the, the city of Ephesus was the keeper of Artemis. She was the goddess of the heavenly realms. <laughs> And he says, ah, that's nothing. You serve the God of heavenly realms. For he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we might be holy. And before the creation, he chose us. He chose Israel. And he chose each one in this room who knows Christ as your Savior. That you might be holy and unblemished in his sight and love. Sound familiar? He did this by predestining us as adoption as his sons through Jesus Christ according to, don't miss this, the pleasure of his will. He will state that twice. To the praise of his glory, of his grace, that he's freely bestowed on us, his dearly loved son, in whom we have redemption. Right? I know we all know that. 
But this morning, just let it sink in. You look at Israel, and we've been walking with them through the, <laughs> the wilderness and, and the sorry lot, and yet God moves in their life. It's the same for us, right? Ephesians 2, we were dead in sin. We, we, we were energized by Satan. We, we wanted nothing to do with God, but God in His great mercy, right? You know the text, right? Ephesians 2. Although you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly lived, right? Among whom also you lived out your lives and the cravings of your flesh, but God being rich in mercy. And there it is. Because of His great love with which He loved us. That's Deuteronomy 7. That's why He chose Israel. That's why He chose you. Humanly, it makes no sense. Sorry. Now I could see why you might choose rock, but, you know, I don't know about half of it, right? just how it is. That's what God did. If you're struggling, man, just m commit that passage to memory, Ephesians 1. But secondly, as we look at this, as believers, we're called to live holy lives as we serve as royal priests under the new covenant. What in the world am I talking about? You don't have to wear a special garb. That's good. And you don't have to sacrifice a bobo. Uh, turn to 1 Peter 2. My mom was a good priest. She burnt a lot of food. But anyway, 1 Peter 2. Don't tell her I said that. 1 Peter chapter 2. I know that was bad. <laughs> Actually, she's a good cook. Not as good as my wife, but anyway. 1 Peter 2. Actually, I hope that, well, that was recorded. <laughs> Delete. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. This is the Lord's Speaking to us, the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Does that sound familiar? It does. Well, good, because that's what he said to Israel, and he says it to the church. You're, you've been proclaimed the virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into a marvelous light. You were once not his people, but you are God's. He has shown, you were shown no mercy, but now you have received mercy. <clears throat> That's your calling, all based upon what Christ has accomplished under the new covenant. Again, the new covenant, what is that? That's what Christ instated. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish it, I've come to fulfill the law. The law demonstrated they needed a Savior. Christ fulfilled that, and He provided the sacrifice that atones for all sin for all time, once for all, by dying on that cross, by shedding His blood. And he instated that, and he currently serves as our high priest. He can't get any better than that, which gives us access to the throne room. And so he can say, you are a chosen race, a royal priest, a holy nation. You know Peter is thinking of Exodus 19. You know he is. He's a good Jewish boy, right? Who struggled a little bit with Gentiles coming into the mix. And he had to reflect back to the promises made to Israel, and now that, that which is being made a promise to the people of God, uh, the church. Questions on that? <laughs> and, and, and we have the privilege of living holy lives under this. It's that new relationship. It's expected. You know, it's expected because that's what you would want to do. I struggle with the believer who just continues to do the same sin and does not seem to be concerned about it. You know? 
well, you know, that's the old fallen nature, or oh, that's the old bloodline I've got, you know, I'm a Scot, you know, or a German, that's just how it is. No, 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 that doesn't wash. <laughs> not, not before the Lord. Because you're actually, first force, your citizenship is in heaven. You're a holy nation. And this nation needs to reflect its king, Christ, right? I guess that's also a comfort on many fronts. <laughs> Our citizenship is in heaven. And, and we are his priest on this earth. And that goes then with the last one we're talking about, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. This is it. Under the new covenant, we have a blessing to serve as a light to all nations. You know this passage, but just turn there, Matthew 28. This is what Lou was talking about. <clears throat> If all we do is hang out with our folks from church and meet on Tuesday mornings for a men's Bible study and we're not in the world sharing our faith, we got an issue. I'm so thankful to be a part of a group of men on the board who's, who's in tune with sharing Christ. Uh, we had a Christmas dinner and they were sharing Christ with this, the, the main cook and the waiter. As this, this is what it's about. As priests under the new covenant, we have a responsibility of being a blessing to the world. And Matthew 28, 19 and 20 says, Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. This is a great text, by the way, for the Trinity, because name is singular in the Greek. Name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always. I will carry you. <laughs> it's not the same term, but certainly elsewhere in Scripture we see. I, I, I'm carrying you along. I'm with you. And before the foundation, I chose you. And you are my special possession, my royal treasure. Right? <coughs> Think how you value your gun collection or your coins or whatever you have, right? Your motorcycle, I don't know. What is your most prized possession besides your wife and your kids or whatever you've got, right? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But your prized possession, and then multiply it times a million. You know, that's how God sees you. That you're His. Isn't that great? Questions? Comments? Any further thoughts? It's a, this obscure passage has so much to say really for us as today, being part of the church, about God's grace and about His promise that He will not leave His people and He will carry them, right? Father, we thank You that we are Yours. And this image of an eagle, it's a rather disgusting little bird, but to know that creature is exactly how you see us and that you, you, you nurture us, you protect us, you carry us. And why? Because somehow you delighted in loving us so much that you gave us your son. And we don't know why. <laughs> we, we stand amazed. We did nothing to deserve this. And Father, there's someone in this room who doesn't know you as their Savior. And they've thought it's all about things that they do rather than just being and, 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 and confessing sin and coming to you, I pray that this morning they'd do that. 
Lord, for those of us who know you, the reason we do what we do is not because it's an obligation. It, it's born out of one that's so grateful that you would lavish your grace and love on us. Father, thank you. Be with these men today. Guide them, protect them, and thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.